Hi, my name is Blue, and I'm the host of this new podcast, The 21st Century Teacher, with Livid Earth. And my job is to ensure that our teachers and students get the most out of our programs. This new podcast series is just one of the ways I'm going to be supporting our community of educators with a monthly conversation with a special guest educator discussing a different aspect of 21st century teaching and learning. A reminder that if you're a teacher in British Columbia, thank you to Focused Education Resources, you now have access to our blended learning library for K-7 teachers. If you would like more information about our programs, please visit our website, liveit.earth. I am so grateful to be living and working in Nelson, British Columbia, where this podcast is recorded. And I would like to acknowledge our ancestors and the keepers of the land that have walked before us. This is the traditional territory of a number of First Nations groups. That is, the Sinaik, the Silk, and the Katnaha peoples, as well our area is home to the Métis and many diverse indigenous groups. Today I'm talking with Leona Prince, an award-winning teacher who has recently been appointed to Director of Instruction Indigenous Education in SD91. Leona has been an educator for 16 years in Northern BC, having served as District Principal of Aboriginal Education for the past four years. Her role will help improve the education and lives of learners through truth and reconciliation and the calls to action. She's also author of two children's books. She also earned an Inspire Award for Educational Leadership at the 2018 Guiding the Journey Educator Awards. Leona, thank you so much for joining me on the show today. I really appreciate you taking the time. Thank you for inviting me. Uh, before I begin, I'd like to do my own land acknowledgement and then tell you a little bit about myself so we can begin in a good way. Uh, so I respectfully acknowledge that the land I'm on today is the land of the Tilkasko or Burns Lake Band. Um, this is the land of their ancestors. So always appreciative to be here to do my work. And so Hari Sai Leona Prince at me. Thomas, you have a season. Lasil you have a zagel zutsnet, Joyce Prince, Glasbet, Borden Barford Abatni, Nak Asli with Dens Ayu, Au Narutan Et Wustai, Stichegla Quene Quit. So my name is Leona Prince. I belong to the Beaver Clan and my father clan is Frog. My mother and father are Joyce Prince and Gordon Barfoot. We're I'm a member of the Lake Babby Nation and I come from Nakazliwitan. My ancestors are Stiche and Chief Kwa. That's great. Thank you so much for that introduction. Um, so let's dive into the first question I have for you. So you're working within a recently created role in SD91, which is Director of Instruction Indigenous Education. Um, and I'm wondering, what is the significance in SD91 for the shift from, in terms of the language, from Aboriginal education to Indigenous? You think that would be like a really easy natural shift, but it's been a bit of a back and forth, then there's, there's a history behind it. And so... 
People are widely using the term Indigenous in Canada for the First Nations, Métis people, um, and Inuit people of our country. Um, the legal definition for us is still Aboriginal at the governmental level. And I wanted to be mindful that the, the children that I'm specifically tasked to serve within our territories here within our schools are First Nations, Métis, and Inuit children. And so historically indigenous folks have been those folks around the world and if i thought about it you know five years ago i would have thought about the hawaiians the maori um the aboriginal people of australia the samai um the ainu like all these world indigenous folks and that's really where that definition lived um there has been a, a slow and steady shift the reason why aboriginal and folks are discarding that title is if you look at the 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 meaning of the word aboriginal not original abnormal not normal and so people draw those parallels my focus was on the legal definition but you know, as in all things, it has to shift and move in a more inclusive term, a more politically correct term now is Indigenous. Interestingly enough, though, we were in a meeting, it was with our Indigenous Education Council, formerly our First Nations Education Council, and we we're talking about this. There was some internal pressures from within our systems, educators who wanted to be great allies and were like, why don't you shift to Indigenous? This seems wrong. And I brought it up to this table who are Indigenous leaders within our 14 First Nations and our school staff all together in this meeting. And it was actually um, one of our former leaders, Monty Palmatier, and he's a, a great mentor of mine. And he said, well, it doesn't matter what other people call us. It matters what we call ourselves. And historically, they've always changed the name of what they call us. And in these territories, we're Naduden, we're Nakazliwuden, we're from Saikas, we're Saikas people, you know, and we're Wet'suwet'en. And so it's our titles for ourselves. Um, we're separated from those political definitions of who we are. And so there never was the pressure internally to make that shift. But there has to be that natural shift, you know. Um, the, there wasn't in the title, it didn't make a difference, but we thought, okay, if we're going to make the change, we'll make the change now that I'm, I'm taking on a director's role. And so that's really it. And in that meeting, the most poignant thing that was said was um, my colleague and friend, Dr. Dustin Lewis said, of all the problems that we face and the issues that we face here in Indigenous communities, taxonomy is the least of them. And so not high on the priorities, but I get where people are coming from. And so we just naturally made that shift. Yeah, I had no idea. Um, and interesting, yeah, that this is a new role in SD91. And I'm interested, I will ask you about other districts and what they may or may not be doing um, and why this role is so important for SD91. So what are the, some of the key, what's the purpose of this new role? Like what's different about this role to the last role that you had? Well, our district is making the statement that this work is the work of a director. That's the level of responsibility. Um, that's the, because it has to do different levels in different names, whether you're a district principal or a director, it has to do with your responsibility. And there's an incredible amount of responsibility um, that 
exist in these roles. You're liaison, you're liaising with 14 First Nations, the provincial and federal government, um, all the schools in your district. So there's a ton of work involved and it may not seem like it, but it is. It's, it, there's, there's very few positions within our organization with that much political responsibility and social responsibility um, to not only uphold your own community within the education system, but you're actually serving all these different, very distinct nations. Right. No, that makes sense. And so what do you see? Other, what's I find interesting is that every district operates a little bit differently in general. And so when it comes to this kind of work, um, you know, with you, within your community and the 14 different nations, how can you compare it in any way to other districts? Or are you very much SD, as SD91 flying the flag in terms of, you know, acknowledging this role in the way that you are? Uh, no, there there has been other directors of Indigenous education throughout the province. Um, and the reason, uh, I can't speak for other districts, but what I see is the number of like First Nations that will play have a factor. Like I said, we have 14 First Nations within this district. Um, and I always remind people of that because there's some districts where there are no First Nations who are located in the geographic boundaries of their district. Or... We have very um, metro districts down in the lower mainland where you'll have relationships with one or two, but you also have huge relationships with um, friendship centers and all those other things. And so, and you also may have a very big student population, but a very small First Nations or Indigenous population. And so the role varies throughout the province. And that's why I see so many varied roles. Um, we have so many First Nations here, so many local education agreements. Um, we have a vested interest in all these communities, not to say that my partners and, and my colleagues don't, but there's different contexts. So I think that requires a different level of responsibility in different positions. Although I do think with the complexity and increasing complexity of this work, I'd be remiss not to say that I think that this should be a director's role. I think that with the focus on Indigenous education, the policies and the directives coming from the ministry, there is always the pressure to do this work and not just external pressure, but an internal pressure, um, a sense of urgency for this work. We, we have a lot to cover um, and our children can't wait for that. And so I think those, those districts like my own who've said this is a director's role are, are definitely holding up that work and showing the importance because we live in a, this is a Western system. And how do you show importance? You, it's like our name in ceremonies in our own, if you get a bigger name, it's more responsibility and it's actually acknowledging the level of responsibility for that title or that name. And so how is your role supporting the indigenization of the BC curriculum? Mm, it's, it's funny because it's twofold. I find that my work primarily is decolonization. Indigenization is how it looks and I feel like decolonization is how it feels. And so in order to do this work, in order to get to where we're indigenizing the system, I think both have value, but the work that we've been concentrating on is decolonization, which is 
changing mindset, shifting mindset, because if we don't do that work first, or at least alongside indigenization, then the indigenization piece becomes performative. And we never want to just seem performative in this work. It actually has to be done at a very deep level and be meaningful um, in order to move things forward in our reconciliatory efforts. Uh, I find that there has to be a balance in that as well. Um, and indigenization can be very interesting. It depends what you're talking about in terms of indigenization, because if it's language, the reason I also don't focus on that, because I believe that language revitalization and all those things need to be community driven. It, it is one of those things that is so sensitive, things that are being rebuilt um, and people are doing it brilliantly in this province nations are doing such great jobs and then there's some nations who are just starting that journey um and so in terms of indigenization i take the lead from first nations even though i am from my living in my own community at, right here in burns lake like i'm here on the traditional unceded territories of Tilcasco, burns lake but my band um is lake babine which is just literally i'm their neighbors here in my space so even though I have that connection to community, I feel like that directive has to come from community. Um, elders, knowledge holders, hereditary chiefs um, need to lead the way in terms of indigenization. So I do a lot of work in decolonization because that we can do together as a system. And in terms of education, is there a way that you could sum that up for any teachers that are listening that are still wondering, like, what does that mean in my classroom? Like, is there any way you could kind of like in a nutshell explain what that is? I, I think it's, it's, I've always tried to assist educators in how they do Indigenous education, not the what. So that's the, I feel like the decolonization is the how and the indigenization's the what. Sometimes I can focus too much on the how and people will tell me that and they need a little bit of the what so they can feel, they can it can look successful and not just feel successful. I do understand the perfect um, relationship between those two. And so I'll give you an example. So we've been looking at land-based education. I give them the perspectives, the indigenous perspectives, not do this lesson so it looks indigenous, but how can we use indigenous principles as a foundation to build that curriculum on. Whereas historically what we've done is here's the curriculum, here's you can fit the indigenous stuff in it. No, no, no. What I'm proposing in, in our reconciliatory efforts is that we hold up all worldviews. And one way that we hold it up, up is use our teachings as a foundation to build all those other perspectives on and, and see how they can coexist. And so there's that piece. And then sometimes I just need to give the teachers a project project that looks Aboriginal. So um, the, the language component that goes with that or the history or the resource. And so they can, it's tangible, right? Because decolonization can be very theoretical um, because it's to deal with your metacognition, you're thinking about your thinking in terms of Indigenous education, whereas indigenization is very practical, hands-on, tangible, and achievable. So there definitely has to be a balance. But that's how I go about it, is I give the resources, but I also give the why. 
Yeah, I love that. Yeah, no, thanks for clarifying that too. Um, now I have I have kids myself. I have young kids, a uh, nine-year-old, a three-year-old, and a six-month-year-old baby who's not quite ready for children's books yet. But I do know your children's author. Um, so I would love for you to share a little bit about your books, uh, A Dance Through Through the Seasons, and a title which I love, and I mentioned to you before we started recording, which is Being a Good Ancestor. I really love that. Um, so could you tell us a little bit about the books? And then, yeah, anything else that's coming up? Any new books that you might be in your mind? Mm, yeah, several. Um these two books were really inspired and you know it's like this ancestral knowledge that just comes to myself in my first book or my sister and myself and myself in the second book like it's it's this this ancestral knowledge that we're just passing on and sharing and so in the first book a dance through the seasons is about it's very autobiographical as well it's about my journey in leadership through this character young woman and being guided through that and that leadership and learning takes patience and time which is one of our first people's principles in this province one thing that I always have at the back of my mind when I'm a helping helping others learn um, learning myself um, planning for learning like it's always patience and time um, and to and really what that book speaks to is about perseverance as well in your own journey um, and following, following a path, following a dream and seeing it through and the lessons that you learn along the way. And kids, um, there's a lot of fun in it as well. If you, you're younger children, um, Carla Joseph is the illustrator and uh, she illustrated both books. And in the first one, there's hidden turtles. So there's, there's a bit of fun it's chocked full of the seasonal rounds activities of our, my people. And so there's a little bit of uh, traditional knowledge that's woven throughout the text, just to give you a sense of um, how important the land is. And so there's that, there's so many themes underscoring that, that leadership sort of story that happens in that book um, that really you could use in many, many areas of our curriculum, which is exciting. So that there's that a lovely story about young woman and how, you know, she find a way, found a way to lead, but it, it happened after a tremendous amount of learning and growth. Um, and then Be a Good Ancestor, which was released in May of this year, is just exciting. It's so exciting. It's a message, I feel like, for everybody. I feel like an adult can pick up this picture book, read the stanzas and understand how the smallest actions can create the biggest change. Uh, the smallest element of nature has huge impacts on who we are as a world. And so the very first stanza, raindrops become puddles, puddles become streams, streams become rivers, rivers become life. Raindrops are life, right? The second stanza, seeds become oxygen, talking about our forests. So it, it, it goes through these three areas of connection to land, connection to others, connection to self. And it talks about the connectedness and interrelatedness of all of us and, and our responsibility for that. And when you are being a good ancestor, being a good living ancestor, 
you're thoughtful and mindful of those every single day. And so it is a book that's definitely relevant right now, a message that is relevant. Um, and, and I'm so happy that children are picking it up and hearing this message and hopefully internalizing it because our world needs a little bit of saving right now. Yeah, for sure. I definitely, uh, a lot of saving. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And, um, yeah. And so another question I have, and this relates to sort of my background as well, which I, I think, uh, yeah, there's a connection here, but is, uh, I was in outdoor education for many years. And so for me, connecting kids to nature, to their surroundings, is such a big part of them becoming a good citizen. So my question is, um, yeah, how important do you think that is, the connection to the land, um, when it comes to Indigenous learning perspectives? Oh, my goodness. So you asked about future projects, right? I've been having, and um, an amazing mentor in my life is Monique Graysmith. Um, I have nothing but so much respect. I have respect and so many kind words that I can say about her, but she truly is a matriarch. And um, she told me this once that, you know, if you're meant to do something, first you'll get pebbles, like just being thrown at you. Hey, you should do this. You should do this. And then rocks, you know, and then boulders. And then, you know, a house falls on you because you need to do this. Right. And so funny that you bring that up. And it's just another one of those creator whispers saying, okay, this is the right thing. Um, I know being in education, I know a lot about place-based education, like taking the classroom, exactly what you said, out on the land. And naturally, through my connection to place, my connection to my people and all of our, our, our practices on the land, those seasonal rounds from a dance through the seasons, I know what it means to have a land-based education. And I think a lot of educators want to do the land-based piece not just take your uh, everyone take your kids outside first and foremost if that's your entry point into an outdoor educational experience what I've been realizing is that people want to do the land-based thing so again use indigenous worldviews and perspectives as a foundation for what they're doing in their classrooms or even personally Um, but don't know how to access that. And so I realized really quickly that, you know, we have those answers, but we have them because we were raised in that way. And so how do I translate, you know, our worldviews and perspectives in a way that will benefit teachers so they can have that deep connection that we feel as stewards of these territories. And so, yes, to answer your question, I think it's incredibly important that more and more, no matter across the subjects, people need to get outside to do that learning and to connect to the land in a real way Um, and, and engage all of your senses in doing that. And so a project that I'm working on right now is to create a guide for educators um, based in our own local DACF land principles and teaching those principles um, so that educators can use that information um, in their classrooms and, and sort of do it with the classroom, but using those fundamental principles like I keep saying go back to the principles because they're there and we can build everything on top of them yeah that's well that leads me into my last question that I have which was like how can a classroom teacher facilitate more of this 
and any ideas that you can share or success stories you've heard. But it sounds like you are creating a booklet mm-hmm. of ideas mm-hmm. that can be shared. Yes. And um, one of the, and I don't want to give too much away, but at the same time, I don't want to miss an opportunity is that one of the biggest barriers, and I, I had this teaching this summer. So we're not born all knowing as Indigenous folks, we have to do our own learning. And one of my language mentors is Guy Prince, who yes, is my cousin. He is a fierce advocate for our language and language revitalization for the Nakaz people, specifically Nakazli. And so he was talking about language and the spirit of our language. And I made this like, um, I was so mind blown. He talked about how the English language is everything's in relation to the human experience. Everything is. Whereas in our language, and I'll give this teaching, it's it's going to be a whole preview of this book and how I'm going to get people on the land in a way and appreciate it the way that we do, is he said, he gave this example um, in DACF that the word for the surface of the lake is the same word for ceiling because we're not at the center of that language. Our surface is someone else's ceiling. So why would those two words be different? So the ceiling for the aquatic life is the surface of the water. It takes us out of the center of that word. Whereas everything in English is kind of centered on the human experience. We separate ourselves from them. And he also had this teaching, that I just read a quote from Guy as well, where there is no word, we don't call our animals it. It is they, because again, it's not in relation, we're the living, they're it's, we are they's. No, we're all they's. So there's an equal playing field. And again, decentering ourselves in language because the English language will say it, you know, and, and how does that dishonor other living things? It makes you more important. There's a hierarchy built into the language that doesn't exist um, within our culture. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Yeah, I hadn't thought about that. Um, I hadn't you know, before not- then either. It was a yeah. mind I'm like, this is why we are so connected to the land. Because if my surface is a fish's ceiling, then I'm not central to that idea of the surface of the water. I'm not, and, and it's, it's it, then it takes ego out of our total experience of life. Um, and actually, because you mentioned language, I'm interested. So in your district, um, how big a part of the education for certainly elementary school kids is the language, is the local language? You know, I'm really proud of the work of our communities and their engagement in our schools. We are having more and more language teachers every year and our kids are better for it. I think even if it you're, you go home and you're like, why are, why are we learning this language? I think you can learn any language and you're just a more wholesome human being because you're, you're, you're thinking in different perspectives. In, in this territory, we have amazing teachers who are so passionate about their work um, and they, they are bringing the culture, language, and history, because and the land, all of those things, like we don't just teach language, it's definitely Indigenous ways of knowing, being, and doing, because you can't pull those things apart. Um, and so our teachers are doing, 
amazing work with our, our kids to give them those multiple perspectives in the local dialects. We have 14 dialects in, in this area that speak Dakath, Naduden, or Wet'suwet'en. And so you're thinking three languages, 14 dialects. And, and that's just in this, you know, 70,000 square kilometers. That is the school district region. But, you know, we have all our nations there. And so we, we still want to be led by the nations. And, you know, it's funny that you asked that because I just had a conversation. There's some interesting developments where the nations are taking up this work and we're being invited along, which is where what our place is. And so I'm excited uh, for the future of, of language development. I myself am in the Naruten um, proficiency diploma program right now. I'm just finishing up my first year. It's, you know, has gone year round. We have three instructors, uh, one Dr. Louise Lassert, um, Rosalie McDonald, and Beatrice Michelle. There are three instructors. They're all from, they're all Natadan from the Lake Babby Nation, and they're teaching two cohorts, and there's a mix of um, Natadan, Wet'suwet'en, and Dakath folks in there, but primarily Natadan, then Wet'suwet'en with a few Dakath folks who have been in these two cohorts for language revitalization. And so just seeing that process from within and, and positioning myself as learner has been incredibly empowering, but it also shows me the need um, for us to support that within our um, education system. That's great. Well, thank you so much for sharing. Um, yeah, everything that you have today. I really appreciate you taking the time. It's so nice to meet you. Um, yeah. Yes, Nanyustan. Bye. Thanks for joining us on The 21st Century Teacher and we'll look forward to seeing you next time. Please do subscribe so you don't miss out on the next show. And also don't forget to check out our fantastic online learning platform, which is liveit.earth. Thanks again and we'll see you soon.